Hi everyone and welcome to this episode of the podcast. Now in a past episode we learned about the unseen world of organ trafficking and I really wanted to learn more about it. So today we're going to take this topic to the next level. Joining us today is Dr. Sean Cullum, a senior lecturer in law at the University of Liverpool, an author and a research advocate for trafficking survivors. His research interests include human trafficking, extra legal migration and transnational crime. His book, Trading Life, Organ Trafficking, Illicit Networks and Exploitation, was awarded the SLSA Book Prize in 2021 and formed the basis of a BBC Panorama documentary on the organ trade. This shocking book examines how the organ trade fits into the anti-trafficking framework, its links to organised crime and the wider political economy. Now, Sean has done fieldwork in Egypt and his research has featured in The Guardian, The BBC and The Times, amongst others, meaning he's highly respected in his research with lots to share. Today, Sean is going to give us a glimpse into the organised criminal networks that arrange organ trafficking in North Africa and Europe. Now, my hope is that Sean will help us understand this current situation, the pressures that lead people to sell organs and how we can all do more. Thanks for coming to join us on the show today. This is an important subject and something that's kind of uh, touched my heart a couple of years ago, if I'm honest with you. And, and, and since then, it's uh, something that I've kind of thought about often and spoken to people about. And the more I learn about it, the more gut-wrenching some of this stuff is. But just just give us, give us a one-minute elevator pitch on what you do and how you got into this. Okay, so I'm a legal researcher, and when I first started looking into this issue, I, I heard lots of rumors. I was actually, so before I became a legal researcher, I heard about this issue. I was backpacking, I was going through Peru, and I heard stories about organ theft. And on, onwards, I went into Thailand, I went to India, different countries where I went. I heard more information and more reports and more rumors. And then I did my PhD, and I ended up doing a PhD on, on organ trafficking. And when I was doing the PhD, I was doing a lot of legal research. So it was a PhD in law. And there wasn't a lot of information about the organ trade. All I could see is that the only legislative response was the trafficking protocol, which included the, room, the removal of organs as a trafficking offence. Um, but there was no evidence base. So for me, it was really important to try and find out what was happening on the ground. And if possible, to talk to people who were involved. I wanted to talk to people who had experienced the organ trade and learn from their perspectives. And I guess I wanted to bear witness to their stories too. And that was important for me because I wanted to use their story to help kind of analyze the law and form the law. And that's the approach that I've taken for the last um, seven years. So to start that journey, it must have been, you know, curiosity initially and a little bit of shock and horror when you started to learn a bit more about it. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, although like a lot of the reports that I had been seeing were talking about organ trafficking and people waking up in bathtubs, missing kidneys, so there was kind of urban legends about the organ trade. And I wanted to see how much truth there was to those legends. Also, I heard reports of people being harvested for their organs in the Sinai Desert in Egypt, for example. And I wanted to kind of investigate that and see what had actually happened. So there was all these reports, but there was no follow-up. And I had seen some legal cases too. There was cases in South Africa and cases in Kosovo about organ trading and organ sales. And these weren't prosecuted as trafficking offences. So for me, I was interested in that. What makes it trafficking and what makes it organ sales? And what difference would the law make in response to that? And who are the actual victims? 
So for me, it was really important to understand how the organ trade was organized, how it had um, been facilitated, what actors were involved. So how were doctors involved? What was the role of brokers, different mediaries? And I also wanted to learn more about the victims themselves. So people I wanted to understand why they agreed to sell a kidney or how they were coerced into selling the kidney. And if the perceptions of whether they sold a kidney or were coerced, if that made any difference to the kind of legal support they might receive. So a lot of people that I ended up speaking to were asylum seekers, refugees and, and migrants. And they agreed to sell their kidney, but more so because of the conditions that they were in. And I guess with the book that I wrote, that's the kind of story I wanted to tell. I wanted to explain to people the kind of circumstances behind the, um, the organ trade. And I wanted to do that okay. from the perspective okay. of the people I spoke to. Okay, understood. Now, try and give me some statistics around this then, because I want to try and demonstrate the scale of this, this going on around the world and where, where are the kind of like the hotspots around the world. We've obviously had uh, a, a previous podcast where we were talking about China um, being, you know, a predominant, you know, center for that kind of stuff. But obviously you're in Egypt, you've gone into Africa and stuff. So give me some stats, please. Okay, so the, the first statistic that I've seen, and it's been kind of reproduced or referred to for years since it was first released in 2007. So the World Health Organization in 2007 wrote a report on organ trafficking. And according to this report, over 10% of transplants are illegal transplants. So that's quite a large figure. And... When I was looking into this more and I was looking at the kind of cases that supported these statistics, I saw that most cases involved people who agreed to sell a kidney. So for me, again, it was important to try and reach out to people and to understand what compelled them to do that. And I also wanted to understand the kind of motivations behind brokers as well. Why would you get involved in the organ trade from that perspective too? So that's the, that's the main statistics that's been carried out and it hasn't really been updated since. But one of the reasons for that is there's a reluctance of people to speak. So it's illegal to sell a kidney. And that even when I first got to Egypt, it took a long time to build up trust before people were willing to speak to me about what had happened. And they weren't necessarily aware of whether it was illegal or not until they sold their kidney. And sometimes the brokers who were involved in this would use the threat of criminal sanction to silence their victims. So a lot of people aren't coming forward to report what's happening because of the fear of prosecution. Also, you can have a case where maybe there's different hospitals involved or there's different doctors who are performing the surgeries they don't necessarily want to know where the organ came from. So, for example, if someone comes to a doctor who performs a surgery, they look at the consent forms, but they may not investigate how those consent forms were written, if there was really informed consent or not. So I, I don't think the statistics speak to the reality. I think it's more common than people think it is. So even going back to that statistic of 10%, um, I think it's an underestimate, if anything. And from what I could see in Cairo and from different countries as well, it's, it's, the organ trade is an open secret. And there's a dependency on illegal supply in a lot of countries. So we have this idea that you can donate your, your kidney altruistically. But if you're living in a country where you don't have access to transplant services, you're not necessarily going to want to donate your kidney for nothing. So in a lot of countries where transplant services first developed, they were developed along commercial lines. And they were developed in kind of private clinics. And a lot of those clinics, the only way to access transplant services, if you were a recipient, for example, was to pay. So there wasn't much incentive for anyone to donate a kidney free of charge if they could never benefit from that system. It's not a reciprocal system to begin with. So that's a problem as well. And I think that's one of the wider issues with this kind of global inequalities in healthcare. And, and that's, that's, that's a major issue that I think stimulates organ trade and organ trafficking. Mm. Mm. Okay. Now, 
in China, we heard that, that surgeons were, were forced to, to do this type of surgery. It, you, on your findings or, and, and the travels that you've been on, have you seen that or, or is it something they're complicit in? Okay, there's just two ways to look at this. So it's, it's difficult to, to say with complete accuracy, but all I can tell you is what I know from the interviews that I did or for the conversations that I had, the former ones and the informal conversations. Sometimes the informal conversations are a lot more revealing. Um, but from what I can see is that it wasn't necessarily direct complicity, but there's a lot of indirect complicity where surgeons perform their jobs, which is just to perform the surgery. That's how they say it, but they don't investigate what's actually happening. So they turn a blind eye to any suspected criminality. So to give you an example, a lot of the people that I spoke to in Cairo, so I'll, I'll, I'll give one example of, of, of Mohammed. So this is, this is someone that I spoke to in 2015. And it was one of the first interviews that I did. He came to Cairo. He was asked, would he, would he sell a kidney? And he was promised $10,000. Um, so he agreed to sell his kidney for $10,000. He was homeless at the time. He, he, was, he had work, but he lost his job because of a disagreement with his employer. And he was actually arrested because of that. And after his release, he found himself homeless. And then he was approached by someone who offered him a solution to his problems, offered him um, the possibility to make a lot of money in a short space of time. So he agreed to this. He had blood tests. And when he was brought to the laboratory, so this was a separate lab from the, from the actual hospital where the surgery was performed, he filled in paperwork. And he wasn't able to read the forms. He said some of the forms were actually in English, and then other forms he just he didn't really understand what he was getting involved in. In any case, the broker who brought him to the clinic just asked him to sign the paperwork. So this paperwork was then sent to the clinic. It would have been sent to the transplant surgeon who performed the surgery. And um, that was it. So once the paperwork was signed, from the side of things, from, from the transplant surgeon's perspective, everything was above board. And I guess mm. there's a requirement, according to the law, the transplant surgeons, they're supposed to sit in committees and look at the paperwork or at least speak to the people involved. So he didn't tell me who his kidney went to. So his kidney could have gone to someone from, from the UK. It could have gone to someone from, from Saudi Arabia, for example. He didn't know. He never met the recipient. On your travels, on your travels have you found that, um, and particularly in Egypt, are organs being shipped overseas in the main or, or are they being used locally? Is it just a, you know, you don't know enough about it so that you can't comment? No, uh, people are coming to Cairo to purchase kidneys. So there's issues everywhere. So there could be issues even in the UK, for example, where there is a good system. We have the NHS. There's still a long waiting list. And I think even with the effect of COVID, for example, you could have more cases now where people have had their surgeries cancelled and they feel like they have no choice but to travel overseas. And then there's the other side of things where there's countries like Sudan, for example, or even Nigeria, where there's very limited access to transplant services. People sometimes feel like they have no choice but to travel overseas to purchase a kidney. And people aren't always aware of the legalities involved, so they don't always know if it's illegal. But for example, I spoke to um, some patients from Macedonia who had no access to transplant services. They couldn't find a donor. And then when they were having dialysis, they were approached by a broker who um, organized their trip to Cairo. So he said to them, look, you're going to be on dialysis for the next seven or eight years. We know how, I know how uncomfortable this is. You can pay me $50,000 and I can take you to Cairo where you can have your surgery in a very good hospital and you'll go back and live a very long, um, healthy life. So a lot of people come, are attracted to Cairo, or have been attracted to Egypt and other countries as well. 
um, Pakistan, there's been reports in India, there's been reports in South Africa, China, as you've mentioned, and they go there for the surgeries. So it's not a case of, I guess, um, okay. people and being recruited in Egypt. Yeah, got it. Why did, you, why did you decide to focus on Egypt? So going back to that report, again, when I started researching this issue, there really wasn't a lot of information. There wasn't a lot of data about organ trading. And the only law that um, was available was the trafficking law, which said the removal of organs is a criminal offence. I went to Egypt because it was identified as a hotspot for organ trafficking. There was a few countries that were named, and I was looking at the reports, but even though they were named as hotspots of organ trafficking, there wasn't a lot of information. Particularly, there was no information as to how these illegal transplants were being organized, who exactly was, being in, was involved, and who the victims were, and what the circumstances were surrounding their victimhood. Um, and for me, it was important to talk to them just to, to find out what was actually happening or just to engage with people who were actively involved. So a lot of the laws that had been developed had been developed in a vacuum. And that was problematic for me. When I think about it, you know, I, I have a friend that's had a kidney transplant and she waited for a number of years before she got a kidney. She's from the UK. And when I think about it, when, you, when your health and your life is on the line or that your life expectancy is not expected to be what you would hope it to be, I'm sure there must come a point where there's some desperation in there. And so with that desperation means you start to look at different ways of doing it. And I'm sure none of it, none of it in, that, in that moment of research is I'm going to look for an illegal kidney on an organ that's been trafficked. You know, it's like the, the mindset is, I would guess is that I just need to get well, I need to get better. Is there a way I can get better? Do you find, you know, have you spoken to people that have received organs and stuff like that or, or have been on the search for organs? Is, is that where they're coming from in many cases? Yeah, and it, it changed my mind completely. So before I started doing this, I thought it was very wrong for people to, to go and buy kidneys of people who were trafficked or compelled or forced or coerced into selling a kidney. Then when I spoke to people, I, I, I kind of understood where they were coming from. And a lot of the people that I spoke to, and I'm not saying this is everyone, but a lot of the people that I spoke to, they, they felt like they had no other choice. So they were faced with a terminal illness. Some of these people were young as well. So there's this idea that if you need an organ, that you're, you know, you're, you're much older and you're wealthy. But a lot of the people that I spoke to who had traveled overseas to purchase kidneys, some of them were quite young. So I spoke to one man, he was only 19 years of age, and he traveled to Cairo for a kidney because he, he, did, well, he didn't want, he couldn't find a live donor. The only person who offered to um, give him or donate a kidney was his mother, and he didn't want that. He felt like for him and for his culture, he said this was impossible, and he couldn't deal with that guilt. And he was approached by someone who told him that they could connect him to uh, an intermediary, a broker, who actually operated out of Istanbul, and they would have arranged for a transplant either in in Cairo or in, in, um, in, in Egypt or in Pakistan. And he was terrified, he was afraid of this, but he felt like he had no choice. And there was a lot of money on the table here. He was charged 50,000 and that was a lot for him. So his whole family, they all got together, put his, everything that they had on the table. Um, they remortgaged their home, they sold everything that they owned just to raise money for this. And he said the trip was, was very scary for him. And it was the last thing he wanted to do, but he felt like where he was, he had no chance of ever getting a kidney. And kidneys is a great example of something that's not very easy to match, is it either? So you have that additional problem because match, it's not like you can just grab a kidney from anybody. It's, it's very hard to match it. Yeah, it can be difficult to match, um, but there, there is a stronger immunosuppressants now, so it's not as difficult as it was before. But there's, there's still surplus demand for kidneys. 
And I think there's other factors that are that people have to consider too. So as I spoke about this man, he, he didn't want his mother. For him, that would have been the worst thing he could ever do for his mother to, to um, give up her kidney. And there's a lot of lack of information about what's involved too. So people are concerned that if um, they donate a kidney, that their health will, will suffer as a result. Not if it's done properly. And so I think the this, this surgery or transplantation, transplants have... Um, improved to a degree where it's not as risky or nowhere as close to as risky as it was previously. Um, but for him, he had a lot of familiar concerns to, to take on board. And as you said before, he wasn't really thinking about the legality of it. For him, it was just about survival. And from the other side of things, from a lot of the donors I spoke to, for them, selling a the kidney was about survival too, economic survival. So for most people that I spoke to, selling a kidney was an economic option of last resort. They weren't necessarily trafficked, but because of their circumstances, they felt compelled to sell a kidney. And because I suppose there's, there's not much legislation or not many laws um, around this, to become a broker essentially means you're, you're, you're not working in any form of regulated environment. You're just trying to be a middleman to try and solve the problem. But is it the underground criminal networks in a big scale in the way that you see human trafficking and drug smuggling and stuff like that? Is it, is it big business? It's big business, but it's, a, it's not necessarily what you think. So it's, it's not necessarily a closed circuit as such. But there has been changes, and some of the changes in the structure of the organized crime groups that I studied did change depending on, on, on the law at the time. So as the law adapted, as there was more focus on, on organ trafficking, I think the trade became more secretive and there was more concealment in place. And I guess then there was more need for protection. And what I mean by protection is, is bribery corruption money. And when those transaction costs went up, um, so too did the level of secrecy and the level of violence and coercion. So I need to explain that in more detail. So when I first started looking into this, a lot of the brokers that I spoke to, they weren't career criminals per se. They, they had different jobs. They saw this as a way to supplement their income. And I remember one of the first interviews I did with, um, with an organ broker it was during the World Cup and in 2014, actually. And we were speaking... I had, he'd been identified to me by someone who sold a kidney and after a while we got talking about the organ trade and he was quite open and quite candid about what he was doing but he saw himself very much as a service provider and he saw what he was doing as a service to his community because the way he explained it to me people were in need of money and they couldn't find any other way to generate an income and they could use this money to help support their families so he didn't necessarily see what he was doing as wrong but he was quite critical of the doctors involved because he told me that he was working with another um, broker who had a direct connection to a doctor. He wouldn't tell me who the doctor was or where exactly he was working. And he said that most of the money was going to the doctors and going to private hospitals. And that's where um, law enforcement should be looking towards. So from his perspective, he said that maybe if someone is charged 50000 or 100000 the vast majority of that money goes to the hospitals that are performing the surgeries. Um, and he said that he was being paid between um, two and 5,000 for every person he brought to the clinic. But again, for him, it was very much a supplementary thing. It wasn't his career choice as such. So it's not something he was specializing in or involved in over a long period of time. He was a musician, um, but I did notice changes. So when the law changed, so there was a law brought in, into place in 2010. Um, it, it, it introduced penalties for organ trading but they were never really enforced because afterwards the revolution came in 2011 in, in Egypt and it took a long time, I guess, for the, um, 
security forces to get their act together or for the law to be implemented in any significant way. But it was never really implemented in a sustained manner. So in 2017, because of more reports came out, they changed the laws. So they doubled up on penalties. And that kind of changed the way people perceived the organ trade. So some of the brokers who were involved that were there in a kind of ad hoc basis, they dropped out because they were worried about being prosecuted. So the sentence went from something like eight years to a life sentence. And also the transaction costs involved changed as well. So what I mean by transaction costs are the bribes too. So more protection was needed. So in order to carry out this trade and in order for the police, I guess, not to investigate suspicious behavior, there was more, um, more money needed to make um, partnerships and to make more to, to establish more collaborative um, networks. Is it difficult to transport a kidney, a lung, a heart, whatever it may be, internationally across three and a half thousand miles? Or just, does it just get stuck into a cool bag with lots of ice like you see in the movies? Yeah, so some of the first reports I started looking into were what was happening in the Sinai. There was a lot of reports in the media about people having their organs harvested in the Sinai. And there was like a, a pit found in the Sinai desert where loads of bodies were, were, were buried and there were missing organs. So I couldn't find a lot of information to, to corroborate what actually happened um, the first time I went. But over seven years, I spoke to people who had went through the Sinai and, and they told me that they were being threatened with organ removal. And one person told me that at one stage he heard from somebody else, so this, this, is, this is hearsay, that um, some of the tribes had removed kidneys. But you can't remove it. it. It can be removed, but it has to be transplanted within 48 hours. So, so the idea was that some of these kidneys in the Sinai, for example, were being transported into, into Israel. Um, but I think from what I know and from talking to Surgeon, this is, it's unlikely that this happened in a sustained manner. Because you can put it, you can transport it within 48 hours, but it has to be done in, in very um, controlled conditions. And then, of course, you'd have to have someone waiting and ready to transplant straight away. So I think that's unlikely. So what, what happens in general is that the actual donor or the organ seller is brought directly to the hospital to have his or her kidney transplanted. And all of the cases that I've come across, I've spoken to a lot of people um, who had sold a kidney or were coerced into selling a kidney, they all had their kidneys taken in a hospital. So it wasn't a situation where they had their kidney removed in an apartment and it was transported to another country. They were brought directly to the hospital or the medical facility where the surgery was performed. Right, okay, got it. I, 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 want, I, I, I want to try and put some numbers to this. It's something that's think is really important to do so. There's no information on how many organs were trafficked, and you don't have enough information on how big that industry is in terms of the the, the cash that's generated for everybody involved. We this this in real terms from where I'm from in the UK, where I live here in Dubai, and obviously you're over in Ireland. This this seems like something from a movie. It doesn't even seem like it, it's real. People actually giving up a kidney or, you know, somebody going out there and dealing with an underground criminal organization as a broker. It just, it just doesn't seem real. It obviously seems like it's for sure something that goes on and you can understand why somebody would be on, you know, fearing death's door if they don't get a transplant and somebody economically needing the money by offering um, a kidney or whatever it may be. But it's like, is this really real? Does this kind of stuff go on 
outside of the developing world, for example, in the first world, do you see any of that stuff go on, or is it only in the developing world? Well, there were some cases in the UK years ago, but I, I can't really say too much for that. All I can tell you is that from what I can see, there's it's, it's much more common than people think it is. So even from connections with the developed world, as I said this earlier as well, I think you can have a case maybe with COVID now as well, where a lot of transplants have been cancelled and people have to travel overseas to purchase a kidney. It, it could happen in the UK too, but I think there is it's a bit more controlled in that respect. But um, there's, been, there's been cases in South Africa, there's been cases in, in Kosovo, and that's involved patients from all over the world. Um, but as for the surgeries where they're actually taking place, from what I can see so far, most of the surgeries have taken place in hospitals located in what might be termed, termed the Global South. But um, the last time I was in, in Egypt, so in 2020, I spoke to a broker and he told me that he's seen at least 20, 30 people a week. So these are people who are selling their kidneys. And he said that he could see more. So I don't have an exact number for you, but he said if he wanted, he could have a lot more business. And a lot of people... So I did notice some changes when the law came in and there was a crackdown on the organ trade. One change I noticed is that less people who were residing in Cairo willing to sell their kidneys. But what happened then is that these groups, they started recruiting people outside of Egypt. So asylum seekers and refugees. So one woman, for example, was recruited directly from Sudan, she was fleeing conflict in South Sudan and she was brought to an apartment in Cairo. She was told she was going to get work as a, as a housekeeper. And when she arrived there with her two children, she was asked to sell a kidney and she refused. And, that's, and, the, and the brokers, the people who brought her there, and there was a group of people involved um, from different nationalities, Egyptian, Sudanese and one Eritrean as well. They told her that if she didn't give up her kidney, that they would take one from her children. Whoa, 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 whoa. Just, just say that again. So she was brought from another country in on the promise of work. She's in in that said country, and they ask her to get rid of one of her kidneys, and she refused. And if she refused, they would take one from one of her kids. Yeah. So one of the reasons that migrants are being targeted, so she, for example, this, this lady, she reported this to the police, but she was told what she did selling a kidney, even though she said she didn't sell one, was a criminal offence. Also, because she didn't have refugee status, she was threatened with deportation. So what, one kind of effect of, of the law that came in in 2010 is that the groups involved in this, in this business started to target um, migrants, um, asylum seekers or refugees. Now, when you think about the doctors that are performing this type of surgery, you know, you think about this for a second. Doctors performing the surgery, not necessarily in the best conditions. Someone gets paid $10,000 to give up a kidney. Now, are they getting the best medical care when that takes place? Are they having, having you know, the best surgery taking place and, and after the operation when they recover? Uh, or is it almost, it, because of the nature of it, is it almost like backstreet clinic mentality? It depends on payment. So if you're paying £100,000, you might get it in a hospital. So just to go back to what I was saying, so I talked about this broker. He said he could have 20 or 30 people a week. So if that's the case, why would he need to force someone into selling a kidney? He didn't. But there was two different kind of networks that were involved in this. So there was some networks that were specialized in more kind of high caliber transplants. So they'd have connections that were built over time with different hospitals or different doctors. And they'd go through normal procedures. They would ask someone to sign a consent form. And this consent form may be brought to a select member of the Ministry of Health to, to approve. 
and everything looks above boards and the transplant surgeon performs the surgery. Now there was also a network that was involved that completely dispensed with the need to do this because it was expensive. So just to give some context, if you need a transplant or if you want to have a transplant in Egypt, you're the recipient and the donor must be of the same nationality. So to get around this, the brokers were buying um, next of kin forms or consent forms directly from consulate officers or from selective staff who they paid off. So that was expensive and those bribes and those costs increased when the law um, went from eight years maximum sentence to a life sentence. So there was more risks involved. But then there was another group who kind of emerged and this group focused on trafficking people from outside of the country. So this is trafficking from from any stretch of the imagination. So people weren't necessarily being told what was happening. They had no agency. They had no control over the situation. And I should say too, that a lot of people who agreed to sell their kidney weren't paid what they were promised. So most people who were promised maybe $10,000, $5,000 were paid a lot less. So for example, someone might be offered 5,000 US dollars but paid 5,000 Egyptian pounds, which is, uh, I think it's, it's like between one and 2,000. So it's a, it's a lot less. But this group, they, to get around the need to get consent forms, to get around um, the need to work with doctors, to work with maybe corrupt police, um, to get around that, they recruited people outside of Cairo and they brought them to medical facilities that weren't fully licensed. And I'm not sure who the doctors are involved in this as such, but these doctors didn't necessarily have the same kind of training as the people who were performing the surgeries in more well-known hospitals. So there was two kind of, it was a dual network emerged. And I've, I've, I've seen, or I've heard a lot of testimonies to corroborate that over the last few years, particularly from 2017 onwards. Okay. When you think about the people that have, taken the money for the, the organs that have been taken from their body. There must be a huge psychological impact on them. Yeah. The, the physical thing, you know, you heal, stitches come out, and hopefully your body works again. But psychologically, the impact on these people. What were your findings when you, when you were investigating this from, from people that maybe had had that surgery one or two or three years before? It wasn't good. Um, you know, I'm, I'm just thinking about someone, uh, Mohammed. Um, so obviously this is a pseudonym, and it's the first one I can think of. But he agreed to sell his kidney. He wanted to support his family back home. He um, he had a, he had a, a mother who needed healthcare. She needed an operation, and he couldn't afford that. So he went to Cairo to find work. He wasn't earning enough. He's working as a security guard. And he agreed to sell his kidney. He wasn't paid what he was promised. And afterwards, he, he just felt terrible. And he told me I was one of the first people he spoke to about this. And for him, he said he just felt suicidal and he felt so ashamed. Um, and it really did affect him. Another person, he was only about, I don't know, he, he told me he was 19, but he looked much younger. Dawit, he had traveled through, he, went, he had went from Eritrea, he escaped from a military camp where he was conscripted, went through Sudan, struggled there for a long time, um, finally found his way to Cairo where he was going to try and claim asylum status but he was encouraged not to do that because he was told if he tried to claim asylum or if he got refugee status he'd actually be stuck in the country he would never get resettled so he thought it was better to try and um, raise enough money to pay for smuggling services to get to Europe but he felt that the weight of expectation 
to provide for his family. So his family had gathered all the money they could get to get him out of military conscription in Eritrea in the hope that he would maybe travel to another country with better economic opportunities and send money back, so send remittances back home to help them. And he felt a huge burden on him to do this, so he felt responsible for his whole family. And he made it to Cairo, and he agreed to sell his kidney. He was working in a glass factory, he said the work was dreadful, he felt like a slave, and then someone approached him and they convinced him that this was the right thing to do. So he had his blood test done, he was brought to um, a medical facility to have his kidney removed, and then he, he was brought to an apartment to convalesce. When he was in that apartment, the first thing he did was ask for his money. And the person who he had trusted gave him 2000 out of the 6000 and told him that he would give him the rest of the money at a later date. Then he introduced him to a friend of his um, called Ibrahim. So this is a pseudonym as well, who promised to get him to Europe, where he'd have much better opportunities. He could go to university. He could get a great job. His family would be very proud of him. And all he needed was a down payment of, 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 of £4,000. So the remainder of the money that he had been promised for his kidney went to Ibrahim. After he agreed to this, he noticed that the broker and his friends started to visit much less often. So it took him about two weeks to convalesce. And he was thinking, why did he want me to convalesce in the first place? So as he explained it to me, he, his, his reasoning was that he was convalescing or they brought him to this apartment so he wouldn't say anything to any of the authorities. Because obviously if he's collapsed on the streets, there's more pressure on the authorities to investigate. But once he's healed, there's, there's less incentive for them to do that or less pressure on them to do that. So he stayed there for two or three weeks, they never turned up. As soon as he got out, he started making phone calls, asking um, this broker, who we call Ali, what happened and where was his friend Ibrahim? He was ready to go to, um, through Libya um, to Europe. And um, he never turned up. And I just remember speaking to him and just seeing the pain on his face. He, he was telling me this story and then all of a sudden he broke down. So before this, he had been quite casual about what happened. Um, and I was the one hanging on because it was, it was dreadful, the situation that he found himself in. But he told me once he realized he wasn't going to get the payments, it just crushed him. He said that all that responsibility, everything that he did, the sacrifices he made were for nothing and that he felt less than human. So, yeah, that's, there, was, there was a very, very strong psychological impact. I asked him, did it affect his health? He told me he didn't have as much energy as before, but it's in his mind that it really affected him. So he was crushed. He trusted, he trusted Ali and he trusted his friend, um, Ibrahim, but they, they, um, he never heard from them again. They just, they just disappeared. They, when he started to call him, he, he answered the first few times, but afterwards he just disconnected. And he never would have agreed to do this otherwise. He just trusted them. And he, he told me too that Ibrahim, when he was speaking to him, was a really nice guy, really charming guy from Eritrea. And he made it sound like he was doing him a really good favor. So doing Dawah's a really good favor. He, he told him that he has so many people who want his services, but he's going to do it for, for Dawah because he likes him. And he was going to give him a really good price. So he asked for 5,000 just to get him to, to Libya um, where, there, where further payments would need to be made if he arrived in, in Europe. But he never went anywhere. So yeah, that's, wow. that, that really struck me, maybe because of his age, but I just, it was the expression on his face and I could tell how, far, how bad he felt because he really wanted to provide for his family. And, and that's the case yeah. for a lot of people as well. Uh, most people who sold their kidneys, who agreed to do this, 
they wanted to support their families. A lot of single mothers were targeted by brokers as well. And brokers had, they had scouts working with them too. So people who, one woman, for example, told me that when she first arrived in Cairo, um, she was staying in a hotel and that there was scouts in the hotel who were kind of learning about her situa- situation, asking, um, you know, where her husband was and um, how she was going to support her family, just to find out how desperate she was, basically. And she was targeted for her kidney then. Um, so, uh, basically, yeah. they were being... A lot of people that I spoke to, they, they were being exploited because of their situation. And one of the issues with the law, and this goes back to my kind of legal background, is that the law doesn't necessarily recognize that level of exploitation. So people talk about trafficking victims. Going back to what we said earlier in the, in the podcast, that um, a lot of the reports I'd seen in the press were very harrowing accounts. But these are no less harrowing, but they're maybe not as sensationalistic as what might be reported in the mainstream press all the time. But for the vast majority of people, they, they agreed to sell a kidney, but it was very bounded consent. They felt like they had no choice. And they, they felt like they had the responsibility of their whole families, particularly if their families had helped them leave a situation of conflict, whether that was in Eritrea or um, South Sudan, the fur. Mm. Yeah, so sad. You wrote a book called Trading Life. Um, obviously, being exposed to all of this, I'm sure that it compelled you in some way to try and put this content together in the form of a book. How long ago did you write the book? Tell me a bit more about it, please. Yeah, so the, the book came out last year. And for me, when I was talking to people, I, 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 of course, I got close to the people I spoke to. People wouldn't open up and talk about something like the organ trade unless there was a level of rapport there or a level of trust. And for them, it was important that the stories got out there. I think it gave them a sense of justice because I used to question myself too. Why did people want to talk to me about this? And I, I would ask people, I said, I would, first of all, I would thank them for talking to me. And people knew who I was because I'd been around for a long time and I'd been going back and forth to Cairo for, for a period of seven years. But for them, it was really important that the stories got out there because they said for a long time, they felt ashamed about what had happened. They were confused about what had happened. And they felt like even if they reported this, and they had reported this to the authorities, they reported this to international organizations as well, that they wouldn't get any support or they wouldn't get any recognition. And at least if this was, if people were aware of what was happening, that it might maybe prevent it from happening to others. So they, they wanted their stories to act as a kind of cautionary tale, I guess, to other people who might consider selling a kidney as well. Um, so it was very important for me to tell their story, but to also explain how they found themselves in positions where there were organ sellers or organ brokers. Because again, with the brokers too, a lot of the brokers I spoke to, they were motivated to enter this business for the same reasons that people were motivated to sell a kidney. They, they were struggling too. And a lot of people who sold a kidney ended up coming, becoming brokers themselves. Uh, so I, I, wanted to, I wanted to tell the human story and... I, I wanted to really foreground their narratives and bear witness to what had happened. So that was really important. And that's, that's why mm. I wrote the book. Okay. And can, where can we get the book? So you can get the book on, I think, well, Amazon. It's available on Amazon. And it's, I guess you can order it online. So maybe the best way to get it is probably going direct to um, the Stanford University Press website or going to um, Combined Academic Publishers. So if you go directly to their websites, you, you can get the book that way. Okay. Okay, last question I've got for you, okay? If you were 
the president of the United States of America, or you were Boris Johnson, and you knew what you know, what do you think you could do to make a difference? Yeah, um, I think the first thing I would do is I, I would try and use my position to speak to other nations to kind of review the whole resettlement process. Um, so again, from what I could see, one of the most vulnerable populations were people seeking asylum or people looking for refugee status. And resettlement positions are being cut all the time, so a lot less people are, being, are getting resettled to a third country where they're maybe safer. And because of that, they're looking for alternative ways to, to, to escape the conditions that they're in. Um, so that can be smuggling, for example. So I think if there was more solidarity, more international solidarity and more concentration on maybe improving the resettlement scheme, for example, people would, less people would find themselves in a position where they, they have to take hazardous journeys overseas, over land to trust strangers who um, might exploit them in different ways, whether it's for their labor or whether it's for their organs. So that's one thing I would do. But I would also look at the laws as well. At the moment, it's, um, it's a criminal offense to sell a kidney. And I don't think organ sellers should be prosecuted. And it's easier to prosecute someone who sold a kidney than to gather evidence on an organized criminal network who were involved in organizing this to begin with. So I think I would change the laws. I, I wouldn't legalize it as such, but I would decriminalize it. I would make it clear that people who sell a kidney um, are not going to be prosecuted. And perhaps that way more people would come forward. There would be more transparency and we'd have more accurate statistics to back up what is happening. And then maybe we'd be able to um, assess the situation um, in a more informed way and develop adequate responses. So that's what I would do. Um, I would also speak to people on the ground and speak directly to the people who are involved in this to learn from them, to learn which ways could support them. You know, what would have been different? How, you know, what, what would you have needed to make a different choice? Or how was it exactly that you were positioned in this kind of exploitative, exploitative relationship to begin with? So I would also, I would, I would change the way we look at um, migration management and, and funding. So maybe if there was less funding put into border security and more funding put into um, supporting people in, in areas of conflict, um, again, they'd be less likely to, to try and travel overseas. So I think what's really important too, and what I learned from a lot of stories is that the majority of people I spoke to, what they really wanted to communicate to me wasn't so much the act of organ removal itself, like the, the, the event of having their kidney taken, but it was everything leading up to that, the kind of process of exploitation. And um, for most people, if they had support, if they had, had better access to work, they may not have found themselves in this position. So I, I think two things, the resettlement scheme should be improved, but also more work has to take place within those countries so people don't feel like they have to um, escape by whatever means necessary. Um, and I, I, would, I would maybe, like one first step would be maybe to stop funding regimes um, that have a history of human rights abuses um, and to, to start putting the money directly towards communities so they can help themselves. Um, so for example, um, this is slightly getting away from the topic, but not exactly. There is connections. Like Libya has received millions of funding to um, build um, to build prisons, basically to to build detention centres, to build um, up their police training and their security profile. But there, there's no like it's 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 still recovering from in the post Gaddafi age. And a lot of this money is going to militias or using the funds um, to buy to buy weapons. Um, and also to profit from the direct exploitation of of other people. So yeah, I, I would speak to 
I don't want to call myself an expert as such, but I would, if I was in the position of Boris Johnson or if I was um, the president of the U.S., I'd, I'd try and engage more with, with experts and engage more with people who've lived through these situations and then develop responses based on those experiences. That makes sense. Well, thank you so much for coming to share some really, really valuable information on this subject. It's, it's been great listening to you. You've obviously a wealth of knowledge around this subject. Ladies and gentlemen, if you want to get a copy of the book, Trading Life, Organ Trafficking, Illicit Networks and Exploitation, please head out and, uh, and grab one when you can. I'll make sure that there's a link in with the podcast. But for now, Sean, thank you so much for coming to join us on the show. Thank you. When you have guests that come on the podcast that know as much as Sean did, it gives you great insight and it sometimes changes your perspective as well because it helps you to understand that it's not all one-sided news. You know, sometimes we have a picture of what organ trafficking is, you know, people being kidnapped and their organs being taken from them and running away and left, you know, to pick up the pieces. But, you know, a lot of this is, as Sean said, people are actually choosing to give a kidney up for ten thousand dollars and there are people that are just desperate out there that need an organ or they might die so you know there's there's so many facets to this which i find really really interesting but it just highlights again the kind of problems that exist and the challenges that uh, face society and developing countries where people economically are so challenged that they're prepared to sell a body part just so that they can provide if you're listening to this on iTunes, guys, I keep saying this at the end of every episode. And while you might think this is a recording, it's not a recording. It's that we just lay over each time. This is me at the end of every single episode saying, please, please, please leave a five-star rating on iTunes. It means so much. If you're listening to this on other podcast uh, platforms, then engage with us. Leave comments, uh, likes, follows, that kind of stuff. Because if you do that, then the podcast gets more exposure gets more exposure other people get a chance to listen to these stories from these incredible people that we've been able to track down and get to come on the show so i really really appreciate for those of you that have already done it and for those that haven't i'm watching please come on come and help us out and get it done i'm looking forward to seeing you on the next episode of the show <laughs>